You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. All right, well, it's 7.05. Let's pray and let's get started. Let's jump into this. we got a lot of material to cover tonight, and uh, I think it'll be a blessing to you, but let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. We worship you tonight. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus and all that he's done for us. Thank you for the price that he paid for his shed blood, for redeeming us and delivering us, healing our physical bodies. We thank you, Lord, that we're saved. We're born again tonight because of what he did. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word of God, the written word of God, and we approach the word with reverence and with honor. And Lord, we believe for your word to enter into our hearts. And Father, that will be changed, will be edified. Father, I believe that our faith will go higher as we hear the word tonight. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he is our teacher and that he will bring revelation and insight. And Lord, we thank you for all that shall be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke, the first and second chapter, uh, in my Bible, I can kind of keep the page open and have both of them there. And then uh, we're going to be looking at some key players in the Christmas story. We began talking about the, the nativity last week and got some insight to it. And by the way, again, the material that we're talking about from tonight comes out of this book by Rick Renner. I printed the PDF, so I have it in a binder. Uh, but it's Christmas, the rest of the story. And uh, if you can, I encourage you to, to get a hold of it. A lot of great insight, much, much more than I could cover in two weeks. Um, but I'm, I'm going to do my best to cover exactly the, what he gives us and says. So the notes on the website are taken straight from the book. These notes that I'm going to go from tonight are taken straight from that book. So I want to be sure I give him credit for that. And, um, you know, it's just, it's very, very interesting. But we're going to look at Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, and then the magi, the, the three wise men. Supposedly there were three. There really weren't, by the way. Okay. Uh, we'll look at that in just a little bit. Now, again, <clears throat> as we talk about these things, don't go throw out your nativity scene, okay? Just uh, understand, have some understanding behind it. All right, so let's dive into why did God choose Mary? And this is very, very interesting to me. I've always felt in my heart uh, when I've read the story about uh, Mary and, and her involvement, obviously, with the birth of the Lord Jesus, I knew that it was not accidental. I knew that it was more than just, um, you know, God going eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and he picked somebody in order to uh, have the, the Lord Jesus be born. So what is the deal, and why did God choose Mary? Well, you're from, if you will remember, last week, we talked a little bit about the, the town or the village of Nazareth, and uh, Nazareth at the time of Jesus' life was a very small town. It only had uh, rough estimates anywhere from 120 to 150 people living there, although some historians go a little bit higher. But it wasn't a huge town that we know it today. If you were to see Nazareth in Israel today, it's a, it's a very uh, large city, you know, probably equivalent to something along the line of Rock Hill or something like that. And... Um, but back then, it was very, very much remote. It was off the beaten path, and uh, it was not a commonly known uh, village or town for people to go and visit. Now, the reason that it's so important in this, and we'll see this in just a second, uh, I tell you what, make a note of this verse, John chapter 1 and verse 46. John chapter 1 and verse 46. Now, this town was so far removed uh, you can kind of understand at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was picking his disciples. You remember he picked um, Philip and Nathaniel, and uh, Nathaniel was talking to Philip, and Philip uh, 
told his friend, uh, or actually Nathaniel was recruiting Philip to, to follow Jesus. And he said, you need to follow this man from Nazareth. And if you remember, Philip's reply was, and it's found in that John 146 is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the reason that, that Philip said that was because Nazareth was what, such a small town that it was hard to believe that anybody as profound as the Lord Jesus would come out of this small town. But let me give you just a very quick little background behind uh, Nazareth. If you'll remember last week, I said it, the word Nazareth comes from the Hebrew word netzer, which means a branch. And the significance of Nazareth is this, that it is believed that 100, uh, 100 B.C., 100, uh, the day, the year, 100 B.C., that a whole division, if you will, of David's family moved up to northern Israel into that area. And so you had this whole group, a branch of David's family that was living in Nazareth. And hence it gained the name of Netzer, which is Hebrew for branch. And so um, the, the interesting thing is the, the angel Gabriel said to her Mary, said to Mary that her son would, would sit upon the throne of David. So, and as we know, the prophecies declared that Jesus was going to be of the lineage of David. So it only makes sense that um, this small town of Nazareth with all of these relatives of David living there uh, would play a part in the Lord Jesus's life. Now, one thing to note is, and we talked about this last week, is both Jesus and, or excuse me, Joseph and Mary were descendants of David. It is, it is clearly said in Luke chapter two and verse four that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. So Joseph was in the bloodline. But let me ask you a question. Was Joseph Jesus's natural father? No, he was his foster father. And uh, who, was his, who was his father? God. God was, okay. So what that means is for that scripture to be fulfilled about the Lord Jesus being of the lineage of David, that means that Mary's lineage had to also be in David because there was no genetic per se relationship to Joseph. Uh, so Mary is the one that gave birth to the Lord Jesus. And so that being said, that shows us that, that Mary also was in the, the lineage and the Davidic line, okay? Uh, write this verse down, Romans chapter 1 and verse 3. Romans chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul makes a note and he says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So what that tells us is even though Jesus was supernaturally conceived, he was born of Mary. And so therefore, Mary's flesh was of the lineage of David. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about why God chose Mary. And let me give you a little more background. About four miles from the village of Nazareth was a town called Sephoris. And it's spelled S-E-P-P-H-O-R-I-S. And um, it was a town, Herod the Great had three sons, Herod Archelaus, Herod Philip and Herod Antipas. And history records that Herod Antipas became the tetrarch or ruler over Galilee. And shortly after Herod the Great made this proclamation, Antipas declared this town of Sephorus as the capital of his uh, division, if you will, of the country. Okay? So, and I don't know if you've ever read much about the Herods. Uh, these were the kings, or Herod the Great was the king, and uh, they had huge egos, okay? You remember Herod the Great was the one that, uh, when he found out from the wise men where Jesus was to be born, he went and had all the infant children killed. Well, this was all about power and ego for these guys. And so what Herod Antipas did is because he was responsible 
and over this region and had his capital, if you will, in this town of Sephoris, he spent a great amount of money to give this town a complete makeover. And so tons of resources were spent in this town to make it fit for this guy who was the governor who was ruling. Uh, Rick says he embellished the city so greatly that it became uh, the most splendid city in the Middle East. And the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Sephoris was the largest and most beautiful city in the region. Now here's why this is so important. That this city rose to such prominence that Jewish leaders uh, constructed a very beautiful and luxurious synagogue there. And it was this synagogue that became the largest center for the Jewish sacred scrolls. Okay. Now I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. So keep tracking with me. As a matter of fact, uh, when the temple in Israel was uh, destroyed in 70 AD, the religious leaders moved all of the items that they could from the temple to this synagogue in Sephoris. And so all of the scrolls, this huge library had was moved to Sephoris. Now, um, you might be thinking, well, what's the connection between Mary and, and the town of Sephoris? Well, uh, you need to understand. Let me give you a couple of names. Joachim, let me spell it for you, J-O-A-C-H-I-M, and his wife, Anna, these were Mary's parents. Now, this is recorded in early Christian history. And uh, they, um, to understand a little bit about Mary's earlier life, you need to understand some things about her parents. They were very wealthy people. They lived in Jerusalem and gave a lot of their wealth to the temple and so forth and so on. And Joachim was eventually uh, relocated to Nazareth and in Nazareth, he was made the overseer of these scrolls in this synagogue. So you had this man that was deeply immersed in all these sacred scrolls of the, of the Jewish people, including the commandments, all of the word of God, everything that they had recorded. He was put in charge of those scrolls and, and, manage them. And so he was, he moved his whole family to Nazareth and, and so that they could, uh, be overseers in Sephoris, this town that was very close. And, uh, so because of that, his family got immersed in the word of God. Now, if you know anything about Mary and you read the scriptures about the, the visitation by Gabriel, and then later when she went to go visit Elizabeth, you know, you've heard me say very often, uh, put the word of God in your heart when you don't need it and it will be there when you do need it. Well, if you read the interaction between Elizabeth and her cousin Mary, it's nothing but the two of them quoting scriptures to each other. Then when they began to prophesy, it is quote, there are several quotes from the Old Testament in their prophecies. And again, what you need to understand is the Holy Spirit cannot bring up out of your heart something that is not there. So my point is this, um, Joachim and Anna immersed their whole family, including Mary, um, in the, the writings of the day. So the word of God was prevalent in their house. Now there's some Christian writings that tell us that uh, Joachim and Anna were older parents and so Mary was very precious to them as far as being their child. It was much like Hannah and, and Samuel in the Old Testament. And uh, so when, they, when, the, when Anna gave birth to Mary, they very diligently dedicated Mary to the Lord for his service for her entire life. So you had this family that was deeply immersed in the word of God. You had this young lady who had been dedicated to the Lord's service. And so, uh, you know, th there, this family was very, very spiritual. And so to help Mary grow spiritually, her parents enrolled her in a special school near the temple in Jerusalem. So Mary was in this school and was taught and trained 
And, and this was very unusual because young women in the Jewish society, much like a lot of Middle Eastern societies, did not get the education that the males did. But they, they made sure that Mary got this education. And so uh, when God revealed his will to her through Gabriel, that she had been chosen to be the mother of the Messiah, that's how come she could accept it without a struggle. This is how come she could believe so easily what the angel told her. Now, if you recall, the angel called her um, blessed and highly favored and then all of the things that uh, he told to her about the birth of the Messiah. And then uh, Mary replies and says, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to your word. So the, the phrase handmaid means servant. So what Mary told the angel, and of course she was saying this to God, was, Behold your servant, be it unto me according to your word. And, and you know, I've always uh, wondered or, or uh, you know, just, just in the back of my mind, it's always been a question mark as to how she could so easily give herself to the will of God in spite of the public persecution that she would endure, you know, she was engaged to be married, but she wasn't married. And here she shows up pregnant. And, you know, there were whispers about her. People talked behind her back, so forth and so on. And, uh, you know, because of all of this, but she was willing to endure and risk that all to allow God's will to come to pass in her life. And so she had been raised from infancy with the knowledge that she was destined to be a servant of the Lord, to be a handmaiden of the Lord. So why did God choose Mary to be the mother of his son? Well, first, she descended from the house of David. Second, she was presented by her parents to the Lord and dedicated to the will of God. Third, she was trained in the scriptures and ready to serve God in whatever way. She was a virgin handmaiden. She was pure and, and uh, she was willing to accept God's assignment to give birth to the Lord Jesus. So you can see that it wasn't just accidental that God chose her. One phrase that jumps out to me is in the, the conversation. Uh, look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 30. When Gabriel appears to Mary, he says to, this to her, then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Um, I saw this a long time ago, and I must just say it very, very uh, plainly. You do not find something you're not looking for. Okay? The angel told her she found favor. So, my point is this, Mary was doing what she needed to do to qualify for the favor of God to be on her life and to be active. In other words, she was fulfilling her part. And so it was because of that and these other things that she was found uh, with favor by the Lord and was allowed to walk through this. Okay. All right. So let's move on. Let's talk about Joseph. Why did God choose Joseph. Well, as we've already said in Luke chapter 2 and verse 4, it says that Joseph was of the house and the lineage of David. So Joseph is and was in the bloodline of King David. All right. Now, um, I want to show you something. Go over, put your ribbon thing there in, in Luke chapter 1 and 2, whichever one. And I want us to go over to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And uh, I learned this from Pastor Rick's book, and it, it was just so profound to me. Luke chapter 13 and verse 15. Now, this is when Jesus in his ministry goes to Nazareth. He ministers in the synagogue. <clears throat> and if you'll recall what the people's... Um, response was, okay, it says, uh, when he, verse 54, when he had come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? 
Verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Okay, and so forth and so on. Now I want you to make a note in verse 55 of that word carpenter when they said, is this not the carpenter's son? Okay, in the Greek language, that word carpenter there is the Greek word tekton, T-E-K-T-O-N, T-E-K-T-O-N. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this, and we mentioned this last week when we were talking about the manger scene, um, and we said to you that the manger itself that the, that the baby Jesus was placed in was not made out of wood. Do you remember why that was so? Because it came from a cave and it was made out of stone. Correct. But what was the reason for that? Do you remember? It's where the stables were, right? Well, the stables were there, but here's, I mean, it's it, it, very easy. And you would have thought of this. Trees were not in abundance there. There was not a lot of wood. Okay. So you had a lot of stone, a lot of caves, as Matt said, but there was not a lot of trees. So in my mind, and I'm sure it's been in your mind, when we've heard the statement, is this not the carpenter's son? Our picture of Joseph was that he made furniture and things like that out of wood. Is, am I the only one that thought that? Okay. All right. Well, actually, when that Greek word tekton is used, let me tell you what it means. It describes a person that is highly advanced in whatever skill he possesses. It depicts one who makes exquisite furniture, jewelry, mosaics, and stonework, or could have even been a building supervisor. The translation into carpenter is a very limiting, poor translation of this word. Let me go on and, and read this to you. Joseph was not just a simple carpenter that worked with wood. Rather, he was a highly paid professional. Furthermore, this word tekton pictures one who had the expertise to envision and create with his hands a well-wrought finished product. Um, these guys were artisans. They were artists. They did uh, just uh, um, incredible things with their craft. You know, um, if you've ever seen pictures of some of the archaeological excavations in Rome or uh, some of the other cities, even Pompeii that was destroyed by the volcano, they have found homes that had gorgeous mosaic tile flooring. They would have frescoes and, and made out of mosaic tiles on their walls, um, just immaculate stone carvings and things like this. Well, a tecton is a person that would have done those types of things. In other words, I wanted to get kind of get out of our thinking that Joseph was just a simple carpenter that threw a few pieces of wood together and made a table. Okay, no. He was a highly skilled, highly paid craftsman. He was very um, skilled at what he did. Now, most of these technicians were so masterful in what they did, they made very good money at what they did. Now, when we see Joseph and Mary first show up on the scene, of course, they're both very young. They're both teenagers. So Joseph hasn't progressed in his trade very much yet. But fast forward to the time when, when they have returned from Egypt, they've moved into Nazareth, and now um, you know he is uh, working in Nazareth, and it is very possible, of course we don't have any written proof of this, but it is very possible that Joseph would have worked in the whole big remodeling and construction project that went on in Sephoris, this town, okay, uh, just a little ways away from Nazareth and would have been used there because of his skill. Now, that all being said, okay, go over with me to Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 6 and look at verse 3. Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, 
This is Mark's version of this same encounter in Nazareth. And so it says in verse 2, Mark chapter 6 and verse 2, When the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters uh, here with us? And so they were offended with him. So what Mark tells us in his gospel is not only was Joseph a tecton, but he had trained his son, Jesus, to be a tecton as well. In other words, Jesus was a highly skilled craftsman, just like his father. Now, one of the things that you have to understand about Jewish culture is that um, Jewish boys, uh, we talked about this a long time ago when we talked, uh, uh, you did the series in the dust of the rabbi, meaning that Jewish boys uh, had a plan for their life to become a rabbi. But if, if they could not uh, pass everything that was required for them to do that, then they had to have an alternate career. And so what the tradition was in these Jewish homes is, is that the, the boys would, would have a dual training. They would be starting down the path of becoming a rabbi, but also they would be trained in a trade. So in case the rabbi thing didn't work out, they had a trade to fall back on. Well, Joseph passed on his skills to his son, Jesus. And, um, you know, Joseph, um, what's interesting is in the whole village of Nazareth, what was Joseph known for? Being a carpenter or being a tecton? Well, the same thing was true for Jesus. So what that tells us is these guys were so good at what they did, the whole town knew about them and knew their reputation and their skill level. Okay. Now, what's interesting to me, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. And in light of what we just said, I want to show you something. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul said this in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, what is interesting about this phrase, we are his workmanship. If you read the New Living Translation, it says this, we are his masterpiece. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul would use this reference for the Lord Jesus, knowing that Jesus was an artist, not only in natural things, but he was a, an exquisite artist in spiritual things. In other words, Jesus in his skill level spiritually, is able to create a masterpiece. Just like in the natural, he was trained to do by trade. Okay? So, and, and I think it's really neat that today, Jesus is still creating masterpieces. When somebody gets born again, they become a masterpiece at his hand. All right? Now, carpenters, quote unquote, in that day, were also skilled stone workers, all right? They were able to do uh, absolutely incredible things with stone to be used in, in monuments, in buildings, and so forth and so on. So again, it was very likely that Joseph and possibly Jesus were used to uh, be involved in the renovation of this city called Sepphoris. Now, Joseph qualified himself to be entrusted with true riches. Okay, what are, what are the true riches? Well, we know from Luke 16, 11, that the true riches are resources that God entrusts to us for the expansion of his kingdom. And specifically, God knew Joseph was a man who could be entrusted 
with the raising of his son, the Lord Jesus. Think about it. God was going to give someone the greatest assignment that had ever been given in the human race, the responsibility of raising the son of God. Would he give that to someone who was poor, unsuccessful, and just a mess in their life? No, he's going to do that with someone who was disciplined, who, uh, you know, was successful in what they did, that they were reliable, and they had proven themselves to be trustworthy over and over and over again. And this is what Joseph was. So he was given the task, the true riches that he was entrusted with was uh, the raising of the Lord Jesus. Now, as you know, in the Christmas story, um, Joseph was also a man of great mercy. Now, how do we know that? Well, when he received the knowledge that Mary was pregnant, he knew that he was not the father. What did he plan to do? Well, the Bible says that uh, he planned to break off the engagement but as I said to you last week, he wasn't going to throw Mary under the bus. He wasn't going to uh, expose her. He wasn't going to make her a public spectacle. You know, the, the truth of the matter is, according to the Old Testament law, Joseph could have had Mary stoned because of what she, what she, because she was pregnant out of wedlock and she was engaged to him. Now, of course, he didn't and, and, and wouldn't have, but the, the thing that I want you to see is, is that in Joseph handling the things the way that he did, he expressed and showed Mary great, great mercy in how he handled that situation. Now, of course, he didn't have to go through with any of that because the angel showed up to him and said, it's okay, uh, and explained how she was pregnant and so forth. But he did not want to make her a public example, the Bible says, and so he had made a decision that he was going to break off the engagement and do it all privately. And uh, then he was going to move on. And of course, the angel uh, interjected and, and stopped this from, from happening. Now, I want to show you something else. Joseph was spiritually attuned and obedient to God. Um, you know, when we, when we read in Matthew's gospel how the angel appeared to Joseph, and told him, fear not, take unto you Mary, your wife, and, and explain to her uh, how she was pregnant. Joseph did not put up any resistance whatsoever. What did he do? He basically uh, received it like Mary did and, and was obedient to what the angel told him. So Joseph uh, was attuned. He knew that what the angel was telling him was from God and that he instantly obeyed what the angel told him. This was could have been an extremely difficult situation, but he was so attuned uh, spiritually that he could hear God speaking to him through the word that he heard from, from the angel. All right, now, um, here's something else that you need to know. Um, Joseph displayed deep trust in God. Now, how did he do that? Well, again, he, he obeyed what the angel told him. But think about this. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Herod was plotting to kill all of the infant children or infant boys, rather, in Bethlehem, what did he do? He gathered up his family and per the instructions uh, that the Lord ministered to him, he went to Egypt and stayed with his family there until Herod died. So what he was doing in that, he proved himself to not only be a man of integrity, but he proved himself uh, to, to have a deep trust in God, no matter what the cost. Now, God would be faithful. As we said last week, he provided for their needs. He uh, provided the gifts to them that they were able to live off of while they were in Egypt, but Joseph definitely displayed a deep faith in God and his willingness to obey God. Now, here's something else you need to know about Joseph and that he was a solid spiritual leader for his family. So let's fast forward a few years. And if you'll remember, 
the scripture says in, in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 and 42, that every year Mary and Joseph would take their family down to Jerusalem for the Passover. Every year they went. Now, this was something that was um, very important, and, and Joseph saw to it that his family participated in the Passover in Jerusalem every year. You remember this is the time when Jesus was 12, and, and uh, so they Passover was over, so they left Jerusalem. We're heading back up to Nazareth. And you remember, they figured out that Jesus wasn't with them and so forth, and, and you know that story. Well, the point is, though, God chose Joseph because he knew he would obey him. He knew that he was faithful, and he knew that he would trust God, and he knew that he would keep his family spiritually focused and minded. He knew that his family would be taught the Word of God, and so this was so very important. All right, so you can see all of these characteristics of Joseph and what enabled God to be able to choose him in order to be the earthly father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk about another set of key players, and those were the shepherds, okay? Who were the shepherds? Well, as we know, uh, go back to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 2 and verse 8 says this, After the birth of Jesus, now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock, by night. Now this is very, very interesting in that, and by the way, just to refresh your memory, Bethlehem is a suburb of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is a very short distance away from Jerusalem. Now Bethlehem, even today, if you were to go and visit Bethlehem, there is what is called the shepherd's field where Back in ancient times, the shepherds would bring their sheep to this field to abide and to stay, okay, and, and when they had to, to do things in Jerusalem and so forth, all right? Now, tradition tells us that these same shepherds were used to breed and raise the sheep that were to be offered as lambs without spot or blemish for temple sacrifices, especially at the time of Passover. Now, the, the Jewish historian Josephus wrote this, get this, every year at Passover, upwards of 260,000 lambs would be offered during Passover. That's a lot of sheep. That's a lot of lambs. And so these shepherds were assigned to watch these sheep as they were born, okay, and, and as they grew, and to uh, raise them for this particular purpose. Now, what is so significant about this is that when they found these sheep, they found sheep in their fold that was that could potentially qualify for uh, to be used in the Passover. Here's what the process was. When a baby lamb was born, I mentioned this to you last week, when the lamb was born to keep it from hurting itself and breaking a leg or something like that, they would take the lamb and they would wrap its legs in swaddling cloths and then they would lay it in the manger for the priest to be able to come by and inspect the lamb to see did it qualify to be one of these Passover lambs. Now again, uh, you know, a very that's exactly what happened with the Lord Jesus. So if we go on and, and we see how the angel showed up, and uh, the angel tells them, Do not be afraid. This is verse 10 of chapter 2. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. This would have been a very easy sign for these shepherds to not only find but spot, and it would be so specific to what they were used to 
that that's why God used this as a sign to them to show them who the Lord Jesus was, that he was the Messiah. And uh, you know that, so verse 15, so it was when the angels had gone away that the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now, what we know is that when Mary, uh, when Jesus was born in verse seven, she took Jesus and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, just like they would have done the baby lamb that was going to be inspected by the priest, okay, and uh, be later sacrificed for the Passover. Now, what's interesting is, look at uh, verse 10, again, what the angel said. The angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Now, verse 11, this is very important. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, why this is so significant is in verse 11, the angel declared all three things that Jesus is and would become. Notice he said uh, that he would become a savior. This is, in the Greek, it means deliverer, healer, preserver, savior. The angel said this is what Jesus will be, okay? So as we know, Jesus was sent, and 1 John tells us to break us free from the power of Satan. So Jesus is the savior. Notice it says that he is, who is Christ, okay? Christ in Greek means, it's the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one. So, so the angel is telling him, telling the shepherds that Jesus will be a deliverer, a healer, a savior. He is the anointed one, which they knew that the Messiah was also called the anointed one and that he was anointed to deliver, to save, to heal, and preserve. And then the last thing that the angel said is that he will be Christ the Lord. Now, what is significant about this is if you were a Jew, what you would hear in that is he is, he is our Savior who is Christ the Lord Jehovah. Okay? So what that means is the angel declared that this was Jehovah in the flesh and that there is no higher authority or power than Jesus in all the world and in the universe. So what is awesome about what the angel said is that he declared exactly all three aspects of what Jesus was going to do in his uh, you know, ministry, not only in his earthly ministry, but what he would do in his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? So that is the interaction with the shepherds, the key part that they played. And by the way, as I mentioned to you last week, the shepherds became the first evangelist. If you look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 20, it says, Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Okay, so, I mean, can you imagine what was going through their minds? Here they are out in the field, minding their own business. They have an angelic visitation who declares to them the birth of the Lord Jesus. The sign was that he was going to be wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger, just like their lambs were. And, and then they went and they go and they find him. And in the meantime, the angel had told them exactly what his ministry was going to be and what he was going to accomplish. And so I, it would be overwhelming to me to experience all of that. But these guys, they came back and with great joy, they, uh, you know, they declared and they marveled these things that were told to them. Okay. Now, as we begin to wrap this up, let's talk about the Magi. Okay. So go over with me to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter two and verse one, Matthew chapter two and verse one. And let's talk about the Magi. It says in two verse one, 
Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, history and early writings tell us that these guys, these men, came from the area that is known as Persia. So if you can imagine, Persia today is modern-day Iran. So either, and Iraq and Iran were borderless at the time, so they could have come from eastern Iraq or, or Iran at the time. Now, here's what is so, so interesting about this, and I'm so glad Pastor Rick brought this out in the writings. Um, we know from history that these magi were gifted in the study of, an, of astronomy, and get this, they were strongly influenced by a man, see if this sounds familiar, whose name was Daniel, who served in Babylon many centuries earlier. Oh, okay? Okay, so you know Daniel was taken captive with the other uh, young men of Israel and, and served in the, the, under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and so forth and so on. All right, and so history recorded all of the things that, that Daniel and these men did. Now, the Magi were elite, powerful, fabulously wealthy, high-ranking priests in their area who were devoted to interpreting dreams, who gained an international reputation of being ex experts at studying constellations, which was regarded as a science at that time. Okay, so they were a combination of scientists politicians, and religious leaders, and were staggeringly wealthy, and so they possessed a lot of great power, influence, and political clout. Now, if they chose to do so, now listen carefully to this, and I'm reading from what Rick says, if they chose to do so, and as a group they agreed to it, they had to uh, the ability to, to depose a king or raise up a king with one word. These guys had that much clout. Um, they could install a new king of their preference in the place of the one that they deposed. For this reason, they were viewed as king makers in Eastern lands, and without their endorsement, it would have been difficult for anyone to become or to remain a king. Now, knowing that, can you understand why Herod was so agitated? First, he was excited, but then he got agitated because of the, the way that these men, these magi, rolled into town. He was concerned that they were going to do something and order his deposition. In other words, he would be deposed off of the throne. So what Herod did when they rolled in, he rolled out the red carpet for them. He... Uh, you know, gathered everybody together and, and I'm sure, you know, threw a big feast for them. It was a big party. And because he knew what the clout was and the influence that these men carried. Okay. So, um, what is interesting about them is, um, and I'll just say this as a little side note, the Roman emperor Nero had an encounter with Magi as well. And if you know Nero, I've told you some things about Nero, how wicked of an emperor he was. And uh, so Herod was aware of how these magi had interacted with Nero, and he was afraid that they were going to do the same thing with him and that he would lose his power. Okay, so he welcomed them. Now, if, you, if you're familiar with the story, we won't take time to read the story, but, but when they came, and notice what they came and declared, is that they were coming to worship the king of the Jews. Now, what I want you to, to imagine is, think what Herod might be, must be thinking. These guys have come to depose me off the throne and they are coming to find this king of the Jews, and they're going to raise him up, and he is going to take my place. So, you know, and he sent them to Bethlehem to go and find the child, which they did, and so forth and so on. Now, 
why did Herod order all of the children to, to be killed was he thought that these magi has, had designated the infant Jesus to be the king of the Jews and that he was going to take over Herod's rule. So what Herod's response was, well, I'll just kill all of the infant children in this village to eliminate that, that possibly from happening. Okay. Now, um, let me, let me just share a little bit more about, uh, the, the connection with Daniel. Um, Daniel lived in Babylon 600 years before Jesus birth. He served under Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Kings Darius and Cyrus of the Medes and Persians. And when Daniel was taken in, into captivity, uh, many scholars believe that he became the head of the Magi at his time. And uh, so therefore his reputation preceded him and was still widely known even 600 years later by these, uh, these Magi, okay? Now, let's see. Let me see what, what I can... Oh, by the way, anybody guess, uh, want to guess why we think there were three wise men? Because of the three gifts. Exactly. But that is not the case at all. Uh, we have thought simply because they offered to... G, uh, presented to the Lord, uh, the, the infant Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that there were only three magi. But um, what we need to see, and you know, everything that we've seen uh, since then has been where there's, you know, in the song, we three kings from Orient, uh, you know, so forth and so on. So we've always thought that there were only three kings. But if you study history, these guys never traveled in a group that small. Uh, history records, and Rick makes a note, that there could have been uh, hundreds of people in this entourage because they would have brought uh, servants, they would have brought military people to protect them, security, uh, they would have had animals, hundreds of animals, they would have needed people and provision to care for all these animals. So it was much, much larger than just these three wise men. And again, if you can imagine, uh, you know, let's just say there was hundreds that came in this entourage. When they roll in to Jerusalem, you can imagine the impression that that had not only in, of, on the people, but also on Herod himself. So this was a huge, huge, big deal. Okay. And, uh, they were all about presentation, these magi. So you can imagine as they were traveling, they probably wore less formal clothes, but as, but as soon as they knew their destination, uh, they would change clothes and put on their elaborate garments and everything that you can imagine that they would be decked out in. So let's quickly, let's talk about the star that they saw. Okay. Keep in mind, the Magi were experts in studying constellations. Now, how do you think they would have gotten a reference to um, something happening, you know, in such a great distance away from them? Uh, how do you think they would have gotten that information? Who have I mentioned that was th their predecessor? Daniel. From Daniel. the writings of Daniel, they knew uh, that there was some inkling that this was going to take place, that they knew that a world leader was going to be born in the future. And they believed that when they saw a particular star in the heavens, it was the confirming sign for which they had been waiting. Now, um, you know, most of us, uh, we, we, we know of a single star and for, uh, you know, they've been trying to, astronomers and historians have been trying to determine exactly which star this was. And uh, what's interesting is uh, many, many years later, 
a, a German philosopher, a mathematician, and a scientist named Johann Kepler proposed that what the Magi saw was an alignment of Jupiter and Saturn, which was recorded in 7 BC, which would have been about the time that Jesus was born. This alignment of Jupiter and Saturn and our moon took place in the constellation of Aries while Venus and Mars were in neighboring constellations. In other words, it was a, a coming together of ideal alignment in these stars that would to the natural eye have looked absolutely overwhelming in the sky, the brightness of it and so forth. Now, what's interesting is this alignment with Jupiter, Jupiter is the largest planet in our solar system. It is also known as the king planet. And isn't it interesting that, that this light that they saw, they called a star, but the light that they saw was all of these planets coming into alignment with the king planet. Okay, so this would have been perceived by these magi as this is the announcement. This is telling us, this dazzling display is telling us that the, the birth of this world leader, this king, has taken place, okay? Now, some people have said that they saw a comet or they saw a, a star that went nova. Well, the problem is, is that uh, these things increase and decrease over time. Now, what is really, really interesting, and I wanted to find this, is how long they actually traveled to get to Jerusalem and in turn to Bethlehem. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Um, do, 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 do. Well, I don't, I can't put my finger on the reference here. Um, well, you can imagine, okay, just look at a map from, let's say, Iran to Israel, okay, the distance that they would have traveled. You don't do that in two or three days, riding camels and, and animals. It takes weeks and months, okay? So what I want you to see is, is that they saw this light for that long of a period of time in order to lead them to where they needed to go, okay? So this was a, a supernatural occurrence. It is, it is a sign that the Lord orchestrated for them for these king makers to be able to show up and worship the Lord Jesus as a child who was going to become a world leader, the king of kings, and due to Daniel's prophecies and what they saw in the constellations, they figured out the dates and, and what Daniel had wrote and what other scripture said, and they knew that it was time for this king to be born, and so therefore, that's why they sought after him. So, you can see all the parts and pieces, even more so, that came into place exactly at the right moment, at the right time for Joseph, for Mary, for the shepherds, for uh, for the Magi, all of this to take place. And you, you know, for somebody to step back and say, well, that was just all coincidence, you have to be out of your mind. There, this was divinely ordered by God for all of this to take place and to uh, orchestrate and bring about the birth of the Lord Jesus so that, now, and the biggest thing to keep in mind is this, Jesus was not born to live, Jesus was born to die. And so we know that because 33 years later, he did die the horrible death on the cross but you know, as we're as we're we're celebrating Christmas and we're excited about the birth of our Savior, understand his overarching purpose in even coming to the earth was to die and pay the price and be uh, that deliverer, that healer, that redeemer, everything that uh, the shepherds found out that he was going to be. That was his purpose in coming into the earth. Now. That was his high purpose. Thank God he had several years of ministry. So we were able to see his example and of course receive his teachings in the gospels. But his purpose was to be born so that he could live and then die and pay the ultimate price 
for us. Amen. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.